weakness and power. In a few weeks' time, King Charles will be crowned king of 15 countries and uh, territories, ruling over 150 million people. And as part of the coronation, King Charles will wear the imperial state crown. The crown is made with gold and set with 2,868 diamonds, 17 sapphires, 11 emeralds, 269 pearls, and four rubies, which is a lot of bling to fit on a crown. The service of coronation includes a prayer that the king will faithfully serve our Lord Jesus Christ in his life. The reading Joe read to us is like a pathetic coronation. The crown of thorns was thrust onto Jesus' head. They placed a purple royal robe on him for this mock parade, a walk of shame. As King Charles processes into Westminster Abbey, the great and the good of the world will bow to him. As Jesus stood, his wrists bound behind his back, he was totally defenceless. He could not even lift a hand to defend against the punches to his face. Here is a weak king, a pathetic king, a defenseless, powerless king. And we wince at such weakness. We fear becoming weak, being demoted or even made redundant at work, losing our physical faculties as we grow old. In his final hours, Jesus spoke with two of the most powerful men in the land. Pilate, the uh, Roman uh, uh, chief of the land, and Caiaphas, the high priest, the religious leader. For these men, getting power was hard and sustaining it was even harder. And it can be the same for us. We climb the ladder of success through sheer grits. Talented colleagues subtly become competitors. When they outperform us, it can leave us feeling bitter and jealous, though we would never admit it. We become experts at hiding and masking our weaknesses. And these twin goals of striving for power and masking weakness become heavy burdens. We can't bear them. At one point, as Pilate questioned Jesus, he said, don't you realize that I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? This is ultimate power, power over life and death. 
What an incredible burden for Pilate to bear. And Jesus looked at Pilate. He loved him in that moment. And he responds, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. For any power that you have is a gift from God. And now this comes as a relief to us because it means it's so much easier to give it away. And that's why Jesus taught his disciples to pray on repeat every day for the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours. And this means we take the big or small amount of power that we have and we constantly offer it back to God. That's exactly what Jesus did in the hours before his death as he prayed at night in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, not my will, but yours be done. In that moment when Jesus gently reminded Pilate that his power was from God, Pilate's response was to want to free Jesus. To use the authority given by God to do the right thing, to act justly. And yet the crowd accused Pilate. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. Pilate, fearful of the crowd, even more fearful of the Roman Empire, caved in and he sent Jesus to be executed. And yet, unbeknown to Pilate, Jesus, this pathetic king at a moment of supreme weakness, was on the brink of his very greatest victory. For as he looked at Pilate caving into injustice, as he looked at the soldiers' grotesque enjoyment of violence, this weak king, knew that what masqueraded as power was really bondage. Though Pilate and the crowds looked like the strong, in reality they were each and every one entangled in sin. They were the weak. And in this moment, Jesus knew that the only way to free them, the only way to free us from the entanglement and the slavery of sin was to take sin upon himself. This invites the question, what if we've got power the wrong way around? What if real power is not found in striving for success? but in our admission of weakness? What if we come clean that, to be honest, for all we know, even our noblest action probably contains significant elements of selfishness? We often have mixed motives. It's like the prophet Isaiah said, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. At the cross, 
we come clean. We say, I have not got it, Lord. I've got nothing to boast about. I've got nothing. For your weakness is more important than you realized. The moment that you start to recognize your weakness, you open a door to God, to your need for God. I mean, in your best moments, you can probably be pretty impressive. But when God shines through the cracks of your life, your brokenness, your failings, your point of weakness, well, that's where the real beauty is. And that's the reason Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What if through the death of this weak king, I become stronger? Through his chains, I'm freed. Through his suffering, I'm comforted. Through his wounds, I am healed. For the cross is your superpower. For through the cross, striving ceases completely. It is finished. No more striving. And through the cross, masking weakness ceases completely. And as a church, we need to become a safe haven for those of us who are addicted to striving and a place in which we drop our masks. For though you are weak, you are forgiven, you are loved, you are secure, and therefore you are strong. Hate and love. The themes of hate and love are interwoven throughout John's gospel and especially in the final hour of Jesus's life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It was God's love for you which motivated sending Jesus on this rescue mission. And out of his love, Jesus warns us that if our number one priority is love for this life, then we will end up deeply disappointed. He said, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. For you were made for eternity. The blessings and joys that you experience in this life are but a little trailer for eternity. Don't become so fixated by them. Don't idolize them. 
Don't feed off them and become so attached to them, for you were made for another world. That's why Jesus said, don't worry about your life, what you will eat and drink and what you will wear. For the pagans run after these things, and your father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom. So Jesus warns us off fixing our love on this life. But where should our love be fixed? John records Jesus' beautiful words to his closest friends just hours before he was arrested. Their first priority in life, whatever life throws at them, must be to remain intimately connected to God. He said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain, abide in my love. You wear many hats. You are many things to many people. But first and foremost, you are one who abides, who rests, who takes great pleasure in God's love for you. I like how in the gospel, John goes as far as identifying himself, not with his own name, but with the phrase, the disciple who Jesus loved. And that's your identity too. You are the one who Jesus is really fond of. And Jesus went on to talk about how this love of God spills out to other people around you. He said, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Notice that this is a command of Jesus. Love one another. How can you command love? Love is surely a feeling. And if you don't love somebody, you can't help it, right? How can anyone command another to love someone that they don't? Well, we are the victims of our Hollywood-saturated culture. We think of love as a strong emotional feeling. But to Jesus, love is far more than a feeling. Your definition of love is far too small. God possesses storehouses of love for you. And the very moment that you open the door of your life, even an inch to, your, to, to God's love, you will find it flooding in at every opportunity. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. This is what God's love looks like. And yet, in direct opposition to God's love for you, you will also experience hostility, even hatred from the world. Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me 
first. And he goes on to describe the reason for the world's hatred. He said, if you belonged to the world, if you fitted in with the world's, it would love you as its own. But I have chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. He's saying, you can't get away from the fact that you are different. You are motivated by different things. Your priorities are so different. And this world doesn't easily deal with difference. It tends to conform. It was Jesus' differences, his criticism of those in authority, especially the religious leaders, which stirred up such hatred culminating in the cross. It was hatred which resulted in his wrongful sentence to death. And as the soldiers drove rough nails into Jesus' wrist, as the cross was hoisted up and dropped into place, causing excruciating pain, as he hung naked while the soldiers divvied up his clothes even not wanting to tear his undergarment because it was of more value than his body itself. Jesus' thoughts were with his friends and his family. He looked down to his mother Mary. Dear woman, he said, here is your son. And to John, the disciple who Jesus really loved, here is your mother. You are to be like family now. You will need each other. And here we have a picture of the church. A community bound first and foremost, not by ties of blood, but by bonds of faith in Jesus. You will be misunderstood. You will be quietly excluded. You'll be held in suspicion by many. You may even experience open hatred and persecution. And if this is your experience, you are not doing anything wrong. But you are a family. You are a totally countercultural community. You are to love one another in the same way that Christ has loved you. Which means in all sorts of big and small ways, you are to give yourselves away to one another. To lay down your lives for one another. And it is this love. For those you like, for those you don't really like. It is this love which will be the greatest witness you can have to the world. Do you know, soon before his death, Jesus prayed for you and for me. He prayed for those who would believe in him through the message of the apostles. And he said, may you and I be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Death and life.
it sounds strange to say, but it is highly significant that Jesus actually died. My favourite movie growing up, which me and my brothers and my sister would watch on repeat during the Christmas holidays, was, of course, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And you have the moment, if you too are a big fan, in which everyone thinks it's over, that Robin is dead. And then, out of the mists of the forest, with shadows being cast up behind him like some sort of messiah figure, Kevin Costner emerges. And it's this sequence that's repeated in so many movies when it looks like the hero is dead. But it turns out that they hadn't quite died, that they had clung onto life one way or another. But Jesus didn't nearly die. He didn't appear to have died. His death was not a metaphor. Jesus actually died. Mike read the words. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And John very purposefully includes details to confirm that Jesus actually died. Crucifixion typically resulted in death in two ways. The first was called hypervolemic shock. And the prolonged, rapid heartbeat resulting from hypervolemic shock can cause fluid to gather in the area around the heart. And this is called the pericardial infusion, apparently. And the second cause of death often occurred during crucifixion, was due to asphyxiation. The person is literally unable to breathe enough oxygen to survive. Crucifixion victims typically had to pull their weight up with their hands and their wrists that were nailed to the crossbeam, along with pushing their feet and the ankles also nailed, just to take another breath. And over time, the ability to push themselves up and to breathe would end. And this asphyxiation also resulted in this build-up of both blood and water. And so John includes the detail that there there was an eyewitness to this moment in which the soldier, aware that Jesus was unconscious and was probably already dead, to confirm his death, shoved a spear into his side, most likely under his ribs. And this ruptured the pericardial sac, resulting in this flow of blood and water. And this man who witnessed this detail would become an important uh, witness, still alive when the Gospel of John was circulating around the churches. That same night, hurriedly before the dawn of Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, accompanied by Nicodemus, sought permission from Pilate to take Jesus' body down. 
The body was wrapped in burial cloths and laid into this new tomb in the garden. On Tuesday here, we held a funeral for an incredibly dear and loved member of our community. And the son told me that it was very important for him to see the body of his dead mother. He said, she looked so dead. It was a moment of closure for her son. Why is it so significant that Jesus didn't nearly die, but he actually died? Well, the Bible presents the death of Jesus as the ultimate and complete solution to the problem of sin in our lives. Through Jesus, this problem is dealt with in order that we can draw closer and closer to God. Peter writes, Christ died for sin once and for all, the righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's you and me, to bring you close to God. Much as we sometimes like to kid ourselves that we're not so bad after all, and the Bible gives a different assessment. It's no use comparing yourself to the people around you because what if we're all in the same boat? What if the things in our lives that we're embarrassed of, our anger, our selfishness, our stubbornness, our lack of care for those in need, our lack of care for the planet, what if these things do us more damage than we have realised? And what if, on the other hand, you and I were made for perfect love in everything that we do? Well, when measured by that standard, I fall a long way short. And it's easy to kid ourselves that we can improve our problems and solve our issues through a process of self-improvement. Like, Jesus can inspire me, but surely he didn't need to die for me. But what if I allow myself to suspend disbelief just for a few moments and to look at what the Bible says about me? For the Bible gives lots of images to help us understand how Jesus' death Remove sin from our lives. There is imagery from the courtroom in which Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve in order that we are no longer guilty before God. We are justified. There is imagery from the slave market in which Jesus' death is like a payment for our freedom. We are redeemed at a price. There's imagery from the Jewish temple in which Jesus' death, just like the animals sacrificed in the Old Testament, was an atoning sacrifice. 
we are forgiven. And there is imagery that Jesus' death brings peace between enemies. We are reconciled to God. And these metaphors, they fit together to reveal the beautiful freedom that we have came at an incredible, unimaginable high price. We're free tonight to live without guilt and shame, to experience God's forgiveness multiple times a day, to be filled with the Holy Spirit on repeat, all because Jesus died for us. And because of Jesus' death, we get to experience a whole new life. For Jesus is not the only one who died. Paul writes to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Through the cross, you too experience a death. Your old life dies. The life that's dominated by sin. It gets nailed to the cross with Jesus in order that just as Christ rose from the dead in the great celebration uh, that we'll go for on Easter Sunday, so you get to live a new life with Christ. To the Colossians, Paul puts it like this. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all all of your sins, having cancelled the charge of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. In a moment, we're going to respond um, by doing something a little bit different. And nobody has to do anything they don't want to. But for those who are up for it, um, we've got some luggage tags on your chairs and some um, uh, pens. And what we're going to do in this symbolic gesture is to nail our old lives, our old selves, to the cross. And so my suggestion is on one side of the luggage tag, you write your name. And then on the other side, you just write, you just come clean with God. You write some things that you want to confess, the, some stuff in your life that you're ashamed of. And what we're going to do is to come up one by one. There's a little hammer and there's some little tacks. And um, I suggest that on the side where you're kind of confessing stuff, Hide that to the cross and have your name <laughs> focused outwards. And I promise you that nobody will read these tags afterwards. They'll go straight in recycling or maybe the actual rubbish. Um, and um, as you do that, why don't you use it as an opportunity to come clean with God, to bring your confession to God. But more importantly than that, to receive by faith the new life that Christ gives you, to walk away from that cross, not holding onto a shred of guilt or shame, for you are free. <laughs>